You're listening to Phanalysis, a science fiction and fantasy TV podcast. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Dawson. And in this episode, we are covering the first three episodes of season three of The Hundred. And we're going to try and stay as spoiler-free as possible for everything after these three episodes. We're going to be talking about the three episodes as a whole, because the storyline really sort of progresses through these first three episodes and, and past them. But we're only doing three at a time. The next three will be in next episode. So let's talk about some of the storylines, the arcs, the themes that go through the first three episodes. I think one of the big ones for me is that we see Abby really having to decide between being a doctor or being chancellor. Yeah, there's a lot of choice making in these episodes. There's a lot of choosing sides and choosing who you're going to be and choosing what's important to you. And that's a big, a big piece for for Abby and, and for everyone. Yep. But we do actually get a scene of Raven confronting her about it. And it's interesting to me because I think, especially in the first few episodes, we see Abby struggling with it, I think maybe more than we've seen her struggle with it in the past, or at least more explicitly, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, she's stretched too thin, right? And trying to do everything. And interestingly, in case we wondered where Clark gets it from, <laughs> apparently from Abby. And and we definitely get that sense, Kane talking about how she's not getting enough sleep, and then the eventual confrontation with Raven, where Raven just kind of lays into her. Yes, partially is defen- in defense of herself to like redirect things, but but she's not wrong. But she ain't wrong, exactly. <laughs> I actually think it's really interesting. The first shot we see of Abby this season, she's asleep. <laughs> yes. She's asleep while Kane is sort of doing her job. Yes. I love the sort of, the, the first part of the season, they're so great because I just kind of love this image of Kane and Abby as these sort of like aging monarchs who are like resigned to the weight of what they're doing. You know, they're they're doing their best to hold everyone together and to and to keep leading people in this sort of journey to surviving, really. And you can really see the weight on them, which I think is is great. I do actually really like that one of the things we see in, in this, because we should mention that there's been a three-month time jump between season two and season three. Yes. And I think we've really seen Kane and Abby grow closer, more more to a united front for the two of them than we've ever seen them be prior to this. Yeah, definitely. Well, especially considering, you know, it's that lovely juxtaposition. They do a lot of that in this season, where at the beginning of the series in season one, Kane and Abby were on opposite sides, right? And now here they are, united together, trying to to make a difference. Yeah, the the time jump, actually, the three-month time jump, one of my favorite things about this season is how well the time jump was used. So one of my big frustrations about time jumps and why they always make me nervous and why I was nervous when I heard there would be one for this show in particular is that they are often used as a way to distance you from really horrible things that happen in season finales. So at the end of season two, we got, you know, the destruction of the mountain and and Clark leaving and all of these kind of heavy, heavy things. And I was concerned that they would try to soften all that by getting us further away from it. But in true the hundred fashion, they've done the exact opposite, which is everything feels heavier and everyone has sort of grown into the weight of all that has happened. You know, all of these consequences have really shaped their lives and who they become. 
it was just a really well used time jump. I feel like to to give more gravity to the consequences rather than take us away from them. Yeah, you're right because it is true that most shows, I think, when they have a big time jump like this, especially, it is usually like to give the characters time to heal from whatever horrible thing has happened. Right, but everybody's just in more pain in this. It's sort of like the immediacy of it has worn off, but now it's the long-term effects that have settled in. Right, yes. But at the same time, they've also allowed them to build up Arcadia and stuff like that. So I think that's also really interesting to me, is they've given them that time to establish their their home base more. Yeah. Well, and life has gone on, as it does. Right. Even in the face of horrible things, life life has to go on, and you have to keep plugging forward, especially when you're fighting for survival in a hostile environment. So yeah, I felt like the time jump was very well used for a lot of things. Um, I agree. I think they also used it for allowing them to get more established and to give us a framework for how things are structured now. But it's just, it's interesting to me too, because hearing you talk about hostile environment, because it is clearly a hostile environment, but at the same time, it's like, is it any more hostile than the lives they were living on the Ark? It's it's hostile in a different way, but I don't know that it's any worse necessarily. Just as hostile in new and different ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, because one of the lines that struck me as really interesting was that they were talking about, oh, I think Jackson mentions it to Abby, that they have four birth control implant removals or whatever it is. Yes scheduled for that day. And so I think that's another one of those, like, there's a sign of how things have changed in the past three months. Definitely. Yeah. And and I, <laughs> side note, small note on that, I, I follow along in all of the live tweeting that the writers and showrunners and all of those folks do during the airing of the episodes. And I, I watched this premiere live. And um, I think it was Kim Shumway, somebody, one of the writers tweeted something like, there, they have implants that prevent pregnancy. Stop asking us about it. <laughs> because there was a lot of discussion about that when everyone was sort of like, they were like, people sleeping together in, in the first season. And everyone was like, is no one concerned about pregnancy here? <laughs> so I just thought that was funny. that <laughs> They were like, just here, here's an explanation. It makes sense that they'd have something, though. I mean, the fact that everybody was limited well, to yeah. one child. Yeah, given the strict population control, it makes absolute sense, for sure. Yeah, but um, agreed. Their world is still hostile and still dangerous, but in really new ways. And some things are possible now that weren't before, right? Some things are better. In this world, Octavia Blake never would have been hidden in a floor, right? So it's that idea of while things are not magically easier, some things are better. And I think that's cool to cool to see. One of the other big things about the first three episodes is really setting up this ice nation versus farm station dynamic because they're they're both the aggressive factions i guess or most aggressive factions of each of the two groups the grounders and the sky crew and how they both keep essentially escalating the existing tension that was there already yeah one of the things i enjoy most about the hundred is the world building. And I, I've started to call it culture building because there's so much wrapped up in the culture of, of these groups of people. And one of my, one of the things I find interesting are the, the gradient of extremism to pacifism, right? And we see 
a lot of levels of that, right? You see everybody from the Ice Nation and Farm Station, like you said, which are, they are the most extreme sort of ends of either side. And then you get people like Kane, right? Who's looking for peace, is willing to do what has to be done, that kind of thing. Interestingly, you get people like Lincoln, who for all he is a massive and deadly warrior is sort of the pacifist of this group. He's a uniter. He's a bridge builder. He's trying to bring peace and I, I think that's really interesting that we get to see all those gradations of humanity because that's how that's how wars start, right? <laughs> it's you have extreme groups who do keep escalating things that are already tenuous. And I love that they set that up for us really immediately in the Ice Nation, the farm station. And it's interesting to me too, because I don't think either of these groups had, well, definitely not farm station, but we hadn't really seen that much of Ice Nation before this either. We heard... Rumors, rumblings. <laughs> right. I mean, there was the mention from Lexa about the Ice Queen killing Kostya, but... Yeah, and Indra talked about them a little bit because she references, in season two, Indra references that even after that, that Lexa brought them into the coalition and mm. that does come up in season two. So there's a little bit of talk of, of them. But but little exposure is what I'm saying. Yeah, agreed. You know, because yeah. we knew there was a farm station, but we didn't know anybody from farm station, etc. Anyway. Yeah. Fresh new faces. And then I guess the other thing that I wanted to talk about as a big thing that happens in the first three episodes is that we really see Clark sort of finding a place or, or purpose, which it might be reaching a bit, but I think the argument can be made. At the beginning of the season, Clark is in pretty much full-on survivor mode. She's out there killing a whatever that is, a panther? A panther. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, she she knows where to take it to get it butchered properly and trade the excess for other things that she needs. But mostly she seems like she's just kind of out there on her own, which makes me sad because poor Clark. Clark's journey through these first three episodes, I mean, through the whole season, but through these first three episodes in particular is incredibly fascinating. And I agree. I think it's about certainly in this first, you know, clearly for the last three months, she has been just in survival mode. She's just been surviving, which anybody who has been through trauma can tell you is sort of all you think about when you come out of that trauma is just how do you get through day by day? And it seems like Clark is just getting by day by day. And it's easy to be consumed with that. But I think as soon as I don't know. In some ways, it's almost the world kind of comes for her, right? I don't think she goes to the world seeking anything. Right. She's still just trying to survive, but the world comes for her. And then, and then it does become this journey of, okay, well, I can't just disappear out of the woods and never come back, clearly. (laughs) Right. And of course, what's interesting too is you find out that they are actually actively searching for her because she's basically wanted by the Ice Nation Queen for you know, the purposes of killing. <laughs> okay. Can I talk about... Dawson just got really excited. <laughs> <laughs> Can I talk about this linchpin thing? This is among those things that when it happened... Okay. I'm one of those people who... I'm a writer, and I'm a storyteller, and I think about, like, structure and how do you how do you organically align certain things in order to bring the people together you need to bring together, right? You have to... They have to have reasons to be in conflict or to be united. In good writing, and, sure. <laughs> Right. (laughs) Caveat. (laughs) The writing has to be good. Um, (laughs) So the one of the things I remember vividly remember watching the first episode and there's 
I had spent much of the hiatus between season two and season three thinking about how they were going to bring Clark and the and by proxy the Sky Crew back into the world of the Grounders. Like, how do you realign that either in conflict or in partnership? And the speech that Indra gives, where she's in the car with Kane and she explains that her people believe that if you kill someone, you get their power. And the Ice Queen wants to take Clark's power. And it's not its not even that they want to kill Clark, right? That motivates Sky Crew. That's not... A, it's probably motivation for Lexa, but it's probably not a motivation for everyone else with the Grounders. But the motivation comes from... As soon as Indra said that, I was like, oh, that's how they align it, right? That if the Ice Queen gets Clark's power, there will be a war and Lexa will be brought low. The The intricacy of that choice, right? How do we bring these two groups crashing back together again after three months when they've probably been fairly separate? To do it that way was, to me, such a tidbit of, of tiny genius right there, you know, to like, how do we reconnect this and to find that way just like elevated everything where... Lexa looking weak at the mountain and Clark looking not at all weak at the mountain and the danger of the ice nation and the sort of precarious state of politics was a really cool thing. It really opened out to me, opened out this storyline in a really neat way. And that one scene where Indra explains what's going on is very cool. Sorry. I just talked a lot, but I love that scene. No, I agree <laughs> with you. I think it was really, really smartly done, especially since it does tie into all of the completely significant things that happened at the end of last season. Right. Yes. Yeah, it feels incredibly organic. And that can be very hard to do in an organic way to bring people back together. Like You can do it in all kinds of ways, right? Very false sort of convenient ways. But this was done in a way that was so organic, it felt very authentic to the kind of story that was being told. It was really, really neat to watch. Mm -hmm. So I guess let's go ahead and talk about Clark's journey, because there's a lot to talk about there. Clark... My poor Clark. I know, and the first time we see her, she's got her berry-dyed hair, and she's hunting for a living, and she jumps on a panther with a knife. <laughs> okay. One thing I'm going to say is that for anyone who read fan fiction between <laughs> season two and three, there was like a lot of speculation, I feel like, that Clark was going to like not do well out on her own in the wilderness. And I'm so glad that that's not the case, because that is a very Clark Griffin kind of thing. I feel like this is very true and authentic to her character, that she would be such a master of survival. I mean, she is great at surviving. That's sort of her deal. Really is. It really is. That and wanting to fix everything for everyone. Right. <laughs> that's true. These are the like defining characteristics of Clark Griffin. <laughs> so to see her you know, bearing the weight of everything she's done and just out there surviving. Like I said, again, this is sort of the this thing that, that the time jump didn't feel like we were removed from what had happened. Instead, it felt like we've become so entrenched in what has happened and the consequences are so overwhelmingly large that we get to see these characters really struggle and Clark really struggles. It's true. Actually, since you mentioned the, the hiatus, I feel like I should confess... <laughs> that I did not watch the first two seasons until right before. Actually, I think I was watching it. I started before season three started airing, but season three had already started airing by the time I finished season two. 
Chris and I have very different experiences of this show because I've been watching since the hiatus between season one and season two. My friend finally convinced me to watch in in January. And now here we are doing a podcast. See what happens. I (laughs) fell for this show really, really fast (laughs) and quite thoroughly. As one does. (laughs) I think we can all relate to that feeling. (laughs) It was about early season two, I think, and I was just, I was obsessed. (laughs) Yeah. This show has that effect on people. (laughs) Everybody who was talking to me was just like, Chris, we get it. Stop talking about it. (laughs) No, (laughs) start watching so we could talk more. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And well, I will say also, it's a show that lends itself to being shared with other people because it is so dense and rich and and layered there's a lot to talk about right there is. is then you encourage all your friends to watch it and then we all watch it and cry together and do a podcast <laughs> and do a podcast <laughs> and like are sad for clark griffin so sad so anyway all of that to say i didn't have time to dwell during the hiatus because for me there was no hiatus i think i took a few days in between <laughs> watching the end of season two and the beginning of season three so such a different experience. <laughs> I know, it's really different. And and so I've sort of been catching up on some of the stuff that was going on, like fan fiction-wise and whatnot. Somebody actually sent me a link to a fic about, you know, what you were just talking about, the the speculation of how would Clark do in between season two and season three. And it was one of those where she just didn't fare that well and they were all that way. I, I don't know why. That was whatever. That was where everyone went with it. I guess it <laughs> kind I of makes silly. sense in that we don't necessarily see Clark herself doing a lot of the survivalist type stuff. She's mostly the organizer, but but she's so smart about the organizing. I don't. But it's Clark, right? Yeah, like that's fundamental to her character, her ability to adapt and survive. And now we all know that. <laughs> yes. And now we all know. Anyway, I was really glad to see it. That was my, (laughs) I was glad that was the route they went. Uh, Like, I'm sure she did struggle at first, you know, but she will, you know, she had three months to get herself sort of stable and and surviving. And it's clear when she talks to Nyla that she goes there regularly, Mm -hmm. right? That like, she has a routine and this is her day to day. This is her day to day survival, um, which is really cool. I think personally, it was a very revelatory thing. Showed us a lot about grounder culture. We got to learn about the trading posts. We got to learn about what Clark has been doing day by day. We get a sense of her relationship. So yeah, I just, I thought that was, again, doing a lot with just the surrounding story is is really cool. It builds the world in a really neat way. So speaking of Nyla, I really like that exchange that she has with with Clark about you know how she doesn't that have exchange is that what we're calling it these days chris <laughs> before that before that where she's talking oh, about okay, how she sorry. doesn't have any kill marks <laughs> oh, and man. clark's response is my back's not big enough and that just hurts my soul can we do we stop here to just like pay respects to eliza taylor in that because i mean not that like a plus writing the line is great the story is great but also eliza taylor plays Clark, like, forged in fire, Clark Griffin, bearing the weight of the world on her shoulders and refusing to admit it so well, I I almost can't handle it. I concur. And that line, like, really nailed that so hard, right? It's it's almost dismissive, but it bears the weight of the world on it, you know? It was, ugh, just absolutely stellar. I have 
as you know, everybody I think who watches this show also has like I have a lot of feelings, <laughs> especially about Eliza Taylor as Clark Griffin. Because <sighs> yeah, I mean, oh Clark, poor Clark. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And speaking of. We also learned that Clark has basically become a legend now after taking down Mount Weather. One Hedda. Yeah. The Mountain Slayer. Commander of Death is the translation of One Hedda, yeah. which I think is great. There was this lovely post going around Tumblr that said, Nicknames people have given Clark Griffin in the hundred. Season one, Princess. Season three, Commander of Death. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> It's true. Which is true. I mean, granted, Princess was like a sarcastic nickname, but One Hedda yes. is, is not a sarcastic nickname. No, it is really not. It is really not. There is something really cool to me about the complexity of Clark being the daughter of a doctor and someone who, um, especially in season one, we saw a lot of her healing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's clearly like a part of who she is and what she learns and what she knows for that person to be Wanheda, the commander of death, is quite an interesting thing to me. It's so contrary to who Clark is, and yet at the same time, not at all, because she is that person who's willing to do what it takes right. to save her people. And of course, being Wanheda is not without its consequences, because now she's wanted by the Ice Nation, and so she gets captured by Rowan, and... That's an interesting story, because Rowan is the Ice Nation prince, but he's not actually working for the Ice Nation who wants Clark dead. He's working for Lexa. Of all the new characters this season, even though we don't see too much of him, Rowan is by far my favorite. He's pretty interesting. I, I like him. I like our introduction to him as this sort of dirty mercenary. And then, of course, the eventual reveal at the end of episode three, that he is the the prince of the ice. I think nation. it's the end of episode two. Is it the end of episode two? I don't know. No, you're right. It's the end of episode two. I've lost track. I understand. <laughs> they all blur together for me. I love that Rowan doesn't lie to her. He tells her the story of like being banished and this whole. You know, he's very truthful with her about what he's doing and why he's doing it. But Clark, obviously, and then we as an audience as well misread that right as like he doesn't quite give us everything <laughs> and i like that a lot i'm actually fascinated by that conversation that they have because the more clark learns of course she starts doing her clark griffin thing where she <laughs> says okay how can i use this information <laughs> to get what i want yes and so very clark so she starts doing the whole you know you and i are the same and of course rowan knowing more than clark does is just kind of like, no, <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not at all. Yeah. I will say the other thing I like is that our introduction to Roan is as kind of this dirty mercenary, right? But as he's interacting with Clark, you get a very clear sense of someone who is more than just a dirty mercenary. And then in that conversation, I like it a lot as well. In that conversation, you really get the sense of how savvy he is about people. And what I love about that is it eventually pays off in finding out that this this dude is like, I mean, he's like Alexa, you know, he he is that sort of political figure. And so we get we do get to see him. I love that the scene where he comes and finds Clark and Polis and he's like all cleaned up and like dressed up. And, you know, here's the real Rowan, mm -hmm. right, who leads his people when he's not banished. <laughs> 
So it's cool that that they really play that with him, that he has the same sort of savvy that Clark does because that's his, that's who he is. You know? So Clark was right. They are the same. Aha, ha, 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 Clark's always right. Let's be real. Not necessarily morally, but factually. <laughs> Clark is smart. Yes, Clark is very smart. But yeah, I think that's interesting. The the scene where he is all cleaned up and he goes to Clark and tries to get Clark to kill Lexa. And he's so good. I mean, like, he's so convincing. <laughs> and, I mean, Clark tries to. She almost goes through with it. But you can see in her face, like, she just, she's not able to. Can't do it. Can't do it. That's the the evolution of, I love where, you know, at the end of episode two, we get the reveal, of course, that Rowan has brought Clark to Lexa. And then Clark's absolute rage, which was spectacular. Like many people, I was like, please don't eliminate the consequences of this. Like, they did not. That was cool. You know, she spits on Lexa and like, there's a whole sort of battle there. Emotionally, not physically, because the guards are there. Um, <laughs> but the evolution of their storyline through the end of episode two and the end of episode three is so intense and brutal in a way that really, I think, is is spectacular to watch. Because I, I had a couple people say it felt rushed, and it didn't feel rushed to me at all. Me neither. It's, it's very visceral, that whole interaction yes. from the end of episode two to the end of episode three. Because, yeah. you know, Clark is mad, and Clark has every right to be mad. Yeah. And what's interesting, which is something I've always found interesting about Lexa, is that Lexa is, I don't know if this is necessarily the, the right word, but she's very reasonable about the whole thing. Mm, because yeah. she doesn't respond that much. Because I think she understands that Clark is understandably mad. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I, you know, we talk about consequences a lot and and... Alicia Dubdom Carey, who plays Lexa, plays her so controlled that I think, and in a really wonderful way, not in a bad way, it's, it's exactly wonderful, sort of on point for her character, plays her so controlled that we just get these little glimpses, these little moments when Clark has the knife to her throat and she says, I'm sorry, I never meant to turn you into this. Oh, that gets me every time. I know, right? That's sort of the the big one for me. And then it has, of course, there's the massive payoff where she vows to protect Clark and her people that the I'm sorry one was where for me, at least they really hit upon this sort of subtle reminder that Lexa has had three months to dwell upon what she did to this woman who she, I don't know if she would have said she was in love with her at the time, but certainly who she cares for very, very deeply. Mm -hmm. And that to me, like when you think about consequences, you know, we we sort of get we get to see like we get to see Broken Jasper and we get to see Bellamy trying to hold everybody together and we get to see um Raven in pain and we get to see Abby and Kane exhausted and trying to, you know, rule their people as best they can, but we don't see that weight from Lexa except in that little moment where you can see the remorse, you can see the regret. You know, and I, I contend, I have no idea, but I can, I would contend that Lexa would do it again and again to save her people. She would always make that choice. Right. But that doesn't mean she hasn't been agonizing over it for three months, you know? And so you get this incredibly rich moment. And again, all hat tips to Alicia Debnam Carey and Eliza Taylor, who just like 
absolutely kill it yeah. because it's the history there is so overwhelming and they play it to the hilt. It's so good. That scene is so tense though. I love it. Cause yes. Yeah. I mean, Clark just, she looks mad and upset and kind of scared even. And, and Lexa's, Lexa doesn't look scared at all. Lexa just looks sad. And I think there's actually a bit of script that the writers posted on Tumblr, if I'm remembering correctly, which says in there that there's just nothing but sadness in, in yes. Lexa's face. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm getting watching it. Oh, my heart. I cannot deal. I know. Oh, but then there's the whole thing with, with episode three. And I think what's so great about the solution that Lexa comes up with is that she never has to do that again. <laughs> Make that yeah. decision because like your people will be my people and now I won't have to choose between the two. Yeah, I wrote about this actually at one point that out of what I love about suddenly having that grasp of, of you know, what is probably three months of Lexa agonizing over what has happened, wondering, you know, what to do about this woman that she loves and having to betray her and if she'll ever see her again, et cetera, et cetera. And then eventually finding out that, of course, she's going to because she sends Rowan to go and find her in order to keep her from being taken by the Ice Nation. And what I love about it is, and I wrote about this, is if you imagine for a moment the kind of politically savvy leader of the 12 clans, <laughs> you know, the great Hedda, who has united all the clans into her coalition and done what no other commander has done, taking the complete weight of that ability to problem solve and to create alliances and bringing it to bear on this problem of having to choose between the woman she loves and her people. And like for her to come out of that with a solution, I mean, it's just fascinating to think about that she must have spent so much time figuring out how she was going to get everybody to accept it and, you know, what she needed to do. I mean, everything Lexa does has three to four layers to it. And it's so cool to see and and to kind of try to uncover them all. You know, people go, I actually, I want to say, like, a lot of people ask all the time, like, did Lexa have Clark captured in order to build this political alliance? Or was it because she wanted to save her from the Ice Nation? And the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. It's all of those things. Lexa is always, you know, moving three or four pieces at a time. And that's what and I love about this whole solution, too. Just because, you know, it is an emotional decision, but it's not strictly an emotional decision because it's so politically smart. Yes. Because they've established, you know, the Sky Crew with their guns is dangerous. You know, they mm -hmm. would be a better ally than they would be an enemy. And why not solve those problems at once, you know? Yeah. So smart. Yes. Agreed. And the, and the same, the, you know, these two, I love these two women are such powerhouses, right? The same on the flip side for Clark, where for Clark, it becomes about deciding not to kill Lexa or not killing Lexa because she feels like she can't or the many, I talked about this, like the many layers of that, that some part of her cares for her, right? And some part of her doesn't want to fulfill the already heavy title of one Hedda one more time, right? To be responsible for one more death. And some part of her knows that politically, if she kills Lexa, they are all in, at risk and in danger. It's the same thing for Clark that on her side as well, there's all of these reasons and all of this complexity and all of these layers for all of the decisions they make. And it brings them to this to this place, right? Where they they end up uniting and Clark bows to, to Lexa and then 
And then, of course, Lexa bows to Clark, and that's a whole other deal. <laughs> well, and it's one of those things, like, it's really more one Hedda bows to the Hedda. <laughs> yes, And true, then true. Lexa vows fealty to Clark. Like, it's a kind yeah. of a, there's like a political aspect, and then there's the personal promise. The head and heart. And I love yeah, it. Very head and heart. Yeah. It's so great. Yep. Oh, it's so good. Like, what a rich tapestry of of a relationship to, like, forgetting even the romantic entanglements, but, like, just any kind of relationship politically and emotionally and everything in between and the weight of their their respective peoples on their shoulders you know these two these two young women just ugh, so cool what good tv eh yep but i'm very very excited about clark being in polis you know because that means that we get to learn about grounder politics the grounder politics are so fascinating in that like i referenced earlier culture building right it's such yes. a cool culture to explore and it is i i remember people were talking about how <laughs> it ended up being not at all what everybody kind of thought it would be like cuz Polis is a big city, and there's the Decalexa Tower. And <laughs> oh, the Decalexa Tower! <laughs> Shout out to Steph, <laughs> um, who was one Heda on Tumblr, and hopefully still is, since I'm referencing her URL. Who was the originator of the Decalexa Tower discourse? I'm going to call it that because that's maybe the best moment I've ever seen in fandom in my life, and I've been in fandom for a long time. <laughs> Yeah, I there was that really wonderful post going around about how everyone sort of imagined Lexa as this like woodland forest leader until season three when we finally like met her in Polis and found out she's actually like this big city girl with a giant tower who stands on balconies and like wears sparkly glitter to bed. Um <laughs> like a true city slicker. <laughs> and I thought that was that was quite enjoyable. I loved seeing I did love the payoff of the scene in season towards the end of uh second to last episode of season two. Lexa says, Polis will change the way you think about us. And mm -hmm. she was right. It did. We, we all have a brand new perspective on the ground. <laughs> she didn't mean Clark. She meant us. <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so let's move on to Kane. Since we're talking about politics, let's talk about the politician Kane. Segway. The ultimate politician. He's sort of like, he's like the, the best of politicians. I take that back. Kane's not ruthless enough. <laughs> Not in this world. No. Clark is the best of politicians. <laughs> Kane is the best peacemaker. But I love that even though Abby is still technically chancellor, Kane's like at least vice chancellor. Is that a thing? I don't know, but it should be and it should be him. <laughs> That's a funny thing they set up, isn't it? Where it's clear that Kane and Abby are sort of managing everything together, mm -hmm. but she's still officially the chancellor. But she's also, like, chief medical officer, so... I guess he's, yeah, vice chancellor. We're going to call him Vice Chancellor Kane from, from here on out, I guess, well. <laughs> For the rest of this episode, we will For call him Vice Chancellor. For this episode, anyway. <laughs> I loved, loved Kane in Polis. That was a great um, exploration of his character, I thought. Yes. And I love, too, that not just in Polis, but before that, we see that he and Indra have become like best buddies in the past three months. Yeah. And it's the greatest thing ever. I love it. What an unexpected partnership, eh? But I love Indra and I love Kane, so it it works out well for me. <laughs> I think it's really telling that of all the Sky Crew, it's Kane that Indra ends up sort of befriending and, and bonding with 
Like, obviously because they've been working together, of course, but also I think it's that Kane is the kind of person who could overcome. Indra can be, Indra certainly was very close-minded. I mean, you know, her, her village was, was the one that was attacked by Finn and she was really angry about that. And she can, she's definitely a manifestation of one of the more warlike sides, not the most warlike side of, of the grounders, but one of the very warlike sides. And, uh, I think it's telling that the person to break through that was Kane with his ultimate peacemaking ways. Ninja monk. I feel like maybe they bonded over both being tough, but fair. (laughs) Yeah, I could see that. They actually do have a lot in common, which is weird to think, but it's true. (laughs) Very, very tough, but fair. But we do see Kane gathering a team together to go look for Clark once they find out that Clark is one Hata and they're trying to hunt her down and that's when they pick up Indra. I actually have a, a comment, a, a comment or question about them picking up Indra because Kane sort of walks out of the woods with Indra and Monty, if you'll remember, says, wait, that's Indra? Which makes me wonder what Monty thought. <laughs> <laughs> Had Indra become this legend in his mind? Some sort of... I sure hope so. <laughs> Wonder Woman-like figure. <laughs> I mean... Like, the actual physicality of Indra, she's pretty imposing. I feel like it would match up with any sort of <laughs> Wonder Woman impression he had. But yeah, I sure, I really hope that Monty thought of her as this, like, amazing mythical creature. I was like, <laughs> man, am I going to get to meet Indra? How cool is that? Like, I hope that's what's happening in Monty's head. <laughs> me too. It's just, I it struck me upon rewatch. Yeah. Anyway, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> But yes, getting back to Kane at Polis, I think that was the moment for me anyway, when I'm like, yes, Kane should definitely be the leader. Yeah, you really see his, the skills of the diplomat come out, which is something they need in this very full world. That was such a great scene when Abby and Kane are talking. And Kane says, when I imagined, when we were back on the Ark, when I imagined the ground, I always imagined it empty. Mm-hmm. And his just sort of wonder at how very much it is not is really, it's the flip side of what we see with the farm station folks that, you know, exposure to new cultures can be a really wonderful experience or, you know, not depending on how it happens and where it happens and when it happens, mm-hmm. and which parts of a, of a culture you're being exposed to. Very true. I love the the fan art that's been going around of Kane and Polis with the I Heart Polis t-shirt and yes. like a little statue of the Decalexa Tower. And- mm-hmm. <laughs> that's Kane to a T. <laughs> that's why I love it. It's so appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> there was a great moment, you know, that moment where Kane goes Indra and Indra sort of comes from, you know, she enters from from off screen from stage stage left and they shake hands and Indra's smiling. And I loved how they played that moment because one of the things they'd kind of been telling us for a while was that, you know, we would think differently of the grounders when we saw them in Polis. And that was because Indra is so tough. I think that was a really simple and elegant way of like revealing what they meant, right? That here, even Indra is different. Right. Relaxed and happy. Yeah. Like we've never seen before. And she calls Kane my friend. And like, I just, I got emotional about it. (laughs) (laughs) I just want them to be friends forever. (laughs) Anything else about Kane? 
And now I think that's it. The ultimate diplomat and, and level-headed and clear-headed and farsighted, you know, seeing, seeing the, the, the moves and the pieces. Kane's a big picture kind of guy. Very, very much so. Actually, speaking of that, one thing we should mention is the fact that Kane gets branded by the coalition. Mm-hmm. Which is a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to agree because that's yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think that the fact that branding is something that they do the th- the thing is that's such a huge part of grounder culture. You can see it in the, you know, the Ice Nation does ritual scarring and tree crew and really everyone we see tend to be very covered in tattoos, right? There's a there's a tradition of self self-marking. Mhm among almost all the grounders, which I think is really interesting. And is an interesting sort of extrapolation out of our culture where more and more we've become less and less concerned with people having tattoos and those sorts of things. It's interesting. But also going back to traditions of, you know, marking one's tribe or whatnot. Yeah, for sure. So shall we talk about Bellamy? Bellamy and his band of merry men and women, as you (laughs) earlier said. (laughs) It's so fun to refer to them that way. <laughs> <laughs> but they're not married. <laughs> thing. Good point. It's it's an, it's an ironic name. <laughs> okay. Like Little John. <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I thought it was interesting too that in the first episode of the season, the first scene we get with Bellamy and Lincoln, they're fighting. And for a second, you think, oh, no, but then you realize that they're sparring because apparently they're working on trading at Arcadia. Yeah, it was a nice little, a nice little moment, right? Like, oh, God, are Bellamy and Lincoln fighting? Oh, no, they're not. Huzzah. I thought it was kind of cool, this conceptual idea of like Bellamy and Lincoln essentially training what looks like I, I just assume this because Harper and Monroe are there what looks like the remainder of the hundred from the dropship. Hmm. It could be a combination of them and the non-delinquents. <laughs> That's true, I suppose. It's just interesting to me that of all the things those those young folks are being trained for, it's combat, right? That they're mm-hmm. and and Bellamy talks about oh man, I love Bellamy's he does his speech about on the Ark this this jacket meant something different. Down here it means what we make it mean. Mm-hmm. And I love that, and because I wrote about this once, because you can practically hear Bellamy in his head going, "What would Clark say?" <laughs> That's the most like <laughs> Clark influenced speech I've ever heard. Like, just like clearly Bellamy's like hung out with Clark for a while before <laughs> he has been influenced. I feel like by her, her season two. <laughs> He's come a long way from whatever the hell we want. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously. No joke. Which you're probably right, is Clark's influence as much as anything? Though it does seem like he's been hanging out with Caden some, so... True. True. I think, yeah, I think he... Bellamy has been very influenced, certainly by Kane and before Kane by Clark, um, which I think is really interesting to his arc this season, that, like, we find him in this place where he's been sort of heavily mentored. And speaking of Bellamy and Kane, I, I think it's sort of interesting that one of the first conversations they have is... Kane talking about how they have a, a chance for real peace and specifically tells Bellamy to not screw it up. 
<laughs> which just seems like foreshadowing, <laughs> given everything that happens in episode three. Why would you say that, Kane? Way to jinx it, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, for sure, they, well, it's going to get screwed up, right? Well, sure, because it's a TV show and nothing can can be good and, and peaceful. Yeah, and I think it's also, you know, it's, it's such an expression of how tenuous the piece is, and that carries on as they go out into the world. <laughs> I did love the bit, since we're talking about Bellamy, we can also talk a little bit about Octavia. I love that, A, congratulations on Maria Avdaropoulos for having gotten her horse. I seem to remember an interview where she said, all I want is a sword and a horse, and she had the sword, and so now she has a horse. <laughs> So good job. Um, <laughs> but I love that bit between her and Raven and the just the little sprinklings we get of this is going back to like the time jump and how you do a time jump, right? Um, I think Miller said, you know, Bellamy says, where's Octavia? And Miller says, you know, we haven't found her yet, but she'll be there. Like she's going to miss an opportunity to go outside the walls, right? And we get this sense of like the kind of wild card that Octavia has become and restlessness. Yeah. Yeah. There were places where the exposition in this episode was a bit clunky because there was a lot to catch people up on. Mm -hmm. But this was not one of them, right? There were also places where it it was really elegant. That's always the word I use when i <laughs> impressed by how little bits of story get revealed. And I felt like that was one of them. We got an immediate impression of wild child Octavia out in the forest. <laughs> Which isn't hard to picture. No, given what we know of her. Actually, we get in episode three that that scene between Bellamy and Octavia where they're sitting on top of the, I don't know, bunker door or whatever you'd call that. Mm -hmm. Oh, that scene. It's so good, but it, it pulls at the heartstrings. It really does. And sort of sums up the Blakes, you know, that's a, well, I say that, but you know, speaking of Bellamy's character growth, that's huge character growth for Bellamy. Mm -hmm. This was a, a guy who in season one, like, posted a guard on Octavia <laughs> to keep people away from her and keep her away from people and keep her from leaving camp. And now he's saying, you know, you always have a place with me, but if you have to leave, I understand. And that's, that's huge. That's a huge move for him. It is. It's yeah. Like maybe he actually trusts that she can take care of herself now. Oh yeah. Which is pretty exciting. Cause have you met Octavia? She can take care of herself and any four or five people you give her. Pretty much, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do want to. This is a bit of a a bit of a jump backward, but um, I just want to shout out to one of my one of my favorite little silly scenes that was a bit of a, it was a bit of a throwaway, really, but it was something I really enjoyed, which was in the in the first episode of the season when Bellamy and his band of merry men and women are sort of barreling out of camp. Octavia goes gal goes galloping by and the rover goes by and we see these there's a shot of these kids kind of watching them go you know really excited mm -hmm. and I just in really enjoyed that little reminder that whatever happens life is going on and the next generation is coming up and the things you do or don't do and the ways you do them are being observed by the next generation and like Bellamy and all of these people Bellamy and Octavia and Raven and Jasper and Monty uh, Miller Harper Monroe, all of them, right, are in some way role models to the young generation coming up. And that was kind of a call to that, which I really, like, even in the midst of just trying to survive, you know, right? they're 
kind of legends in the making. And that's, to me at least, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Just as Clark has become one Hedda to the grounders, I think, it makes sense that the hundred, or the 45 that remain of the hundred, would also be something of legend among the Sky Crew, just for having survived on their own for even as long as they did. Yeah. And through the things that they did. Getting out of the mountain and leading the war and... Yeah, all of those things. Agreed. Shall we talk about Octavia and Lincoln? Oh, Octavia and Lincoln. I have a lot of feelings about Octavia and Lincoln. <laughs> I know. It's so hard to watch them be at odds, but it's also sort of wonderful in that the way they're at odds is like the healthiest couple way of being at odds I've ever seen on TV. <laughs> <laughs> Elaborate on that. One of the things I like about Octavia and Lincoln is they're they're sort of... In season one, they were kind of like the Romeo and Juliet, right? The star-crossed lovers from different different families who hate each other. But here, you know, over time, they've really become sort of the the healthy, <laughs> the healthy, stable relationship. You know, they save each other and they pick each other back up when they fall down, and they they help each other with the things they need, and they teach one another things. And this is this is no different, right? That they don't agree. They don't agree on the on the right next right course of action and Lincoln has kind of taken this position of of peaceful peaceful integration and trying to be a voice of reason and trying to be a presence in the Sky Crew camp that represents that the Sky Crew and the Grounders can live in peace together. And Octavia doesn't want that. She doesn't want to be part of Sky Crew. She, you know, these are people she's grown up with who locked her in a floor for many years and then locked her in the skybox and then sent her to the ground and have trapped her one way or another her entire life. And I think the way that they fight, right, is is it's not personal and it's not angry and it's not vindictive. It's very, they are on opposite sides of this perspective of how to deal with these things. But the strength of their relationship doesn't go away in that, right? That even after they fight, Lincoln goes and talks to her and finds her and, you know, kind of they they love one another, even when they argue. And that's, I think, a really great thing to put on TV. Because personally, I think on TV, we don't talk enough about how you can argue with your significant other and not, like, have your whole relationship fall apart. <laughs> there aren't a lot of healthy relationships on TV. It's true. True. Because they're, I guess people think they're less interesting. But personally, I think this was incredibly interesting. It was a very compelling, it still is a very compelling story. Yeah. It's all in how you approach it, and I I never understand why some writers don't try more to do that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's drama to be mined other than having them repeatedly break up and get back together. (laughs) Agreed. But yeah, I love how they get upset. They both have valid reasons for being upset. And then, yeah, Lincoln goes and he finds her and curls up with her out in the woods. So sweet. Somebody told me it's like a bear cuddling up behind a honey badger. And I was like, oh, my God, you guys, <laughs> that's the exact description of Lincoln Octavia's relationship. <sighs> it was great. So let's talk about Raven, who I love. Raven. In case anybody didn't pick up on that, despite me saying it at least once an episode. <laughs> How could you not love Raven? I have no idea. The problem is I love all the characters. Like anytime we talk, start talking about a character, I realize now that I'm like, but how do you not love them? They're wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. They've got good characters on this show. They do. When we pick up season three, it turns out Raven's injury has gotten worse, which 
breaks my heart because stop hurting Raven Reyes, right? That was mm-hmm. a thing I saw repeatedly tagged on Tumblr posts. I've seen it for years, even though I haven't been watching the show that long. Yeah, it's it's prevalent. Everybody's like, stop hurting Raven. <laughs> Her hip and leg have gotten worse, and Abby notices, because why wouldn't she? And there's all this conflict between Abby and Raven, and it kind of breaks my heart. Raven, Raven in pain is, the thing is, I get why they put Raven in pain so much. I agree. Because Stop everybody Raven loves Reyes. her. <laughs> 20, yeah, 2016. But the thing is also that Raven is incredibly compelling when in pain, right? Raven is sort of a master of pain. And that is very compelling to watch in that. And I will also say, like, I'm just going to be apparently complimenting the actors this entire episode. You know, huge props to Lindsay Morgan, who plays Raven in such a way that the physical pain she's dealing with is a manifestation of greater pain. And we see that, you know, she refuses anybody's help and she is really tough and wants to do it on her own. And then in 303, we ha- we get that conversation with Sinclair where... That scene is so good. Oh, man. They're both so good in that scene. It's such a great moment where they really... You have to build really authentic characters in order to do something like that where you, you suddenly and and deeply strip back all of the layers that hide the truth about them. And they speak a very hard truth about themselves. And, and I love that the characters have enough depth in the show that they can do that with Raven. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just, I think Raven is incredibly compelling in, in that sense, right? That, you know, what if I'm just broken, right? Is the, the line that will slay you in your... <laughs> I was going to say, don't say it, I might start crying again. I, I know. <laughs> but uh, I think that's a part of why Raven is compelling when, when she is in pain, right? Is because she refuses to let all the things that have happened to her tear her down. But it is tearing her down. And that's a... It's hard to watch, but it's... You know, I say it all the time. Hard to watch, but man, is it good TV, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and since you're talking about Raven and Sinclair, I, I like that this season we're getting a lot of scenes of Raven and I, not necessarily mentors, but adult friends, maybe? The grown-ups? Yeah. <laughs> I think we could call them mentors. That seems fair. Okay. Okay. But along with Sinclair, we get some scenes with Abby. And I mean, I love the relationship between Raven and Abby. I think it's really interesting that there's sort of this you know, surrogate family kind of thing that they've got going on, especially Mm -hmm. since the beginning, right? With Raven missing Finn and Abby missing Clark, and they sort of are there for each other and helping each other out. So given that that's the basis of this relationship, it's kind of hard to watch it this season, just because, I mean, there's always been a certain amount of tension and perhaps bits of animosity between them. But I think it's... I don't want to say animosity, though. It's not quite animosity, but there's this thing that's going on this season where basically Abby is trying to help Raven because she cares and because it's her job. And and Raven is, understandably, I suppose, but Raven's defensive about it and keeps trying to divert Abby by making harsh but accurate charges about Abby not doing her job as chancellor and or as a doctor because she's tried to do both. 
Yeah, this is the <laughs> this is the danger when you let people in, right? Is that once you know each other well enough, the discussions become a lot harder to <laughs> to hear because you can speak a lot of truth to one another. And I think we get that with with Raven and Abby where there's a there's that push pull of speaking truth to one another and not always being ready to hear the truth the other person is speaking. And I think I mean, you know, Raven's accusations come she like you said, she's not wrong, but also she's doing it because she's trying to derail Abby from trying to convince her to do something about her leg, right? That's right. And that's it is. It's hard to watch. But I also, again, back with the like, I appreciate how they show different types of relationships on this show and that this is like, this is one element of it, you know, where someone can say something in order to divert you or because they are feeling defensive and that doesn't make the thing they're saying wrong necessarily. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And how do you deal with those two contradictory things? Like, you know, what do you say to that? And I love the beginning of that conversation because Abby sits down and Raven says something like, are you here as my, as my chancellor or as my doctor? Because I don't want to talk to one of you. And Abby's like, I'm here as your friend. Then then Raven says, let's drink. <laughs> you know, if I were to pick one person to go out partying with from this TV show, it would be Raven Reyes, just for the record. <laughs> as much as I totally stand Clark Griffin and love Clark Griffin, I feel like Clark would be really intense to go out and party with. <laughs> Clark's just intense all around. I mean, exactly. Like Clark is, for the record, is and always will be my favorite character. No one will ever top that. However, for going out drinking and having a good time, I would pick Raven. <laughs> Clearly, so would Abby. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that is a really lovely scene, and I appreciate the again the like. This is the reality of relationships. They're complex and messy. And sometimes you're going to be mad at one another about different things, but that doesn't make you not friends, you know, doesn't make with Lincoln and Octavia, it doesn't make the person not your significant other. And I like that they explore that on this show. Mm -hmm. You don't have to stop being angry at someone in order to share a drink. (laughs) (laughs) There's your life wisdom for the day. (laughs) Oh, dear. Since we're talking about that scene, shall we talk about Jasper? Yes, let us talk about Jasper, who is a disaster. Jasper the disaster. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, he's literally on the floor the first time we see him this season. Yeah, I mean, I something I, I find interesting about Jasper, a lot of people were really upset with him, like, and didn't, like, were bothered by his character and how he's behaving. And I just want to say that the the interesting thing to me, story-wise, about Jasper is that we have all of these characters, right? We've had this time jump. It's been three months. And so we have all these characters who have had this really sort of messed up kind of internalization of everything that happened. So they're all messed up in really like sort of covered up kind of ways, right? You can kind of imagine they've like, they've strapped themselves together and bandaged themselves up and they're limping along as best they can. So you have, you know, Lincoln and Octavia who are just trying to like figure things out between them and, you know, deal with the complexities of being part of Sky Crew, but not part of Sky Crew. You have Bellamy, who is like trying to hold everything together in Clark's absence and still carrying the weight of everything that happened at the mountain and the responsibility of like making sure these kids stay safe. And the same with Kane and Abby, right? They're, they're doing their best to keep everything peaceful and to avoid a war. Um, so you have all of these people who are kind of like they've picked up and they've moved on and they're doing what they have to do. And they have a lot of deep damage 
but they're functional because they have to be. And then you have Jasper. And Jasper is the open wound, right? Jasper is still sort of, he is not recovered and he has not moved on and he is not functional. And everybody responds to trauma differently. And that's how Jasper responded. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that they show all of those different things, all of the different ways humans respond to trauma. And this is one, right? And I like that Jasper is sort of that representation of that raw, open pain that everybody sort of has shoved deep, deep down in order to continue functioning. Jasper hasn't done that, which I think is really interesting. Right. Yeah, it's one of those things. I do find Jasper frustrating, but at the same time, I totally get where it's coming from. Oh, yeah, for sure. But it's like, dude, at least stop being a jackass to your friends. (laughs) Agreed. I am not condoning Jasper's behavior. (laughs) Right, right. I am merely saying that thematically, it's it's interesting. (laughs) Agreed. Yes. But yes, agreed. Like, he's horrible to everyone. And that's not cool. Like, don't do don't be that guy. (laughs) Come on, Jasper. But then it's kind of nice in that we see both Monty and Octavia, especially responding with kindness to Jasper and his being a jackass. Yeah, agreed. There's that great moment for Octavia where she's sitting with him after he's smashed the art and looking at that Maya's favorite piece of art. Right. Side note, that piece of art is a depiction of hell based on Dante's Inferno. And the following episode, episode three, is All Ye Who Enter Here, which is a piece of the inscription written on the door to hell in Dante's Inferno. So anyone who's curious, there's some fun some fun art things that the writers threw in there for us to, to tinker with. And then Mount Weather gets destroyed. And everything is terrible. Anyway. That's like pretty much a summation of that whole episode really (laughs) (laughs) mount weather gets destroyed and everything is terrible (laughs) yep not everything just most things (laughs) yeah i mean i think we get you know shifting away from the relationships and 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 our individual characters and raven and jasper and all of those folks shifting back to some of the major moving pieces of the story abby as we said she makes this sort of massive massive tactical error moving people back into at back into the mountain. I do want to call out one of my favorite lines in the first three episodes was when Nico says, places aren't evil, brother, people are. Which truer words, right? Yeah, that was such a like, I love that Nico has this like one spectacular line. He doesn't talk a whole lot, but when he does, man, <laughs> we get good stuff. He's like the wise old sage, you know? <laughs> To me, that's a really lovely piece of foreshadowing, right? Because right on the heels of that, we get Pike and his very militaristic, very extreme group of farm station people. And I think from Nico saying that and then getting to know Pike, you immediately get the sense that like Pike was on a trajectory to be the danger in the mountain again, you know, Mm -hmm. that like you could see that happening. And so as as audience members we got to watch like Abby make this horrible decision to move farm station people into the mountain. (laughs) Which of course, I mean, I get it on some level because it makes sense from a certain point of view, but at the same time, well, she wasn't there when Pike was like, Oh, we took the mountain was how he phrased it when he was talking to Kane. Yeah. It's like, Oh, we took the mountain because Pike is clearly seeing it as some sort of military victory. Yes. We conquered it. It's ours now. But yeah, I just, it's such a terrible decision. 
It's like, I get why you did it, but it's not smart. And especially given that the summit was about to happen. And I was watching episode three again, and I just kept thinking, could you not wait until the summit and maybe bring it up there as a possibility to like, at least see how it fares with the grounders? Agreed. Which I think is what Kane would have done. <laughs> Probably. I mean, that said that not everybody has the perspective that Kane does, right? Like as audience members, we have a great perspective on on the grounders and who they are and how trustworthy or not they may be. But, you know, Abby and Abby and, and Kane and Pike and, and all those people, like they don't have that perspective, right? We get we get information that they don't have. Right. So I mean I do think it's sort of a massive tactical error. And I do like that they sort of made it clear that Abby didn't talk to Kane before doing it because he kind of is frustrated about it you know he basically he basically says what you just said chris which is this could jeopardize everything we're doing at the summit this what you've done here and i think you know i th- I think you, when you don't have all the information and when you are operating largely on gut instinct you you make bad decisions which is another good summary of the show <laughs> so true when placed in a survival scenario and feeling like you're backed against a wall even if you're not probably gonna make some bad decisions and they do over and over again. <laughs> that's sort of that's sort of it for 303. I mean, that's the like the mountain is destroyed and the summit is disrupted and we are sort of left. I loved that these first 3 episodes left us with essentially what they did was the first 3 episodes were moving all of the chess pieces into place. So now Clark is where Clark is where she needs to be, right? Clark is is in Polis as an ambassador, forcing Lexa to keep her word, ensuring that Lexa will keep her word. The Sky Crew now has been backed into a corner, right? They've been attacked by Asgeta, and the mountain has been destroyed again. <laughs> They've been had to move back to Arcadia. The coalition has been threatened by the danger of Asgeta. Lex's position is sort of tenuous because the Ice Queen clearly is kind of coming for her. And conspiring with the ambassadors. And conspiring with the other ambassadors, yes, which we find out. And with Emerson, the last mountain man, which we find out at the end of 303. Yep. That was a good reveal. It was. I was surprised when people were surprised. I assumed when when the assassin in the mountain had the code that it was going to be Emerson. But maybe that's because I follow all the writers on Twitter and they all were like, we, this is not the last we'll see of Emerson when he disappeared <laughs> last season. So <laughs> maybe I just... Had too much information. <laughs> but I mean, Emerson and the ambassadors, I, I, to be the whole, yeah. like, there was like a little secret gathering. Yeah, yeah. And and how, again, you get the, like, show don't tell, right? So what they've shown there is exactly how politically savvy Queen Naya is, right? That she's managed all of this. And I, I do love that the ambassadors are there because it makes me wonder, and as, as I have mentioned, I love Rowan, it makes me wonder how much of Rowan's imprisonment there, like he could probably escape and maybe he isn't because he's there doing work for Asgina, you know, that like he's there to be a political figure and not just a prisoner. Hmm. So I wonder about that as well. Like how much is he involved in all of that? Interesting. I referred to the end of 303 as like having set the chessboard, right? All the pieces are where you need them now for this really wonderful <laughs> sort of spiraling tension and for everything to collide and happen. And I, I love that in three episodes, they put everything where it needed to be, gave people the proper motivations. 
that was some some impressive story strategy and maneuvering that they that they did. So I think we're we're poised for everything to start happening at the end of 303 and that's really exciting. Yeah. I actually think episode 303 is maybe my favorite episode of the season so far. Maybe. It's up there. I really really enjoyed it. My favorite might be 304. Watch the Thrones. Those are my two favorite. Those are at the very top. 303 and 304. Which one I like more, I'm not sure, but Yeah. But 303 also has the grounder anthem. Oh, it does. It's a good song. I like it. That's so good. I ha- I downloaded it Me too. on my iPhone. <laughs> it's that's how good it is. Fun fact, the woman who sang that song is one of Clark's stand-ins, actually. Mm-hmm. One of Eliza Taylor's stand-ins. So talk about an incredibly talented, incredibly talented cast and crew on The 100, which is spectacular. Yep. So there are our thoughts on episodes 301 through 303, or at least most of our thoughts. We have a lot of thoughts about this, in case you hadn't picked up on that. If you have thoughts that you would like to share with us, you can send it to us in a number of ways. You can send us an email at feedback at askgenretv.com. You can also record a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to us at that address. You can follow us on Twitter at askgenretv. You can also go to our website, askgenretv.com, to find our other podcasts, including ones for Lost Girl, Orphan Black, and Killjoys. And if you feel like it, let us know which character from the hundred you would like to go partying with. For what it's worth, I think I'd like to go partying with Lexa because I feel like her idea of partying would probably be sitting quietly and reading a book, which is the only kind of partying I do. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>